0: it's 2 a.m. welcome back to the 2 a.m. book review club where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late this week, we are wrapping up our Reading Around the World miniseries with A Spell of Good Things by Ayobami Adebayo, which is not only a new release, but it is also a new release that was long-listed for the 2023 Booker Prize. It didn't make the shortlist, But that is still a really exciting accomplishment. And I am also really excited to talk about this book. At this point, I am going to give a spoiler alert, a spoiler warning. I am going to be spoiling a spell of good things. I'm going to be spoiling major plot points. I am going to be spoiling the ending. So, if you are interested in reading this book, as you should be, it's it's a really good book, then I would definitely recommend reading it first. So, spoiler alert, spoiler warning, you have been warned. At this point, I also need to issue a content warning. In this episode, we will be discussing the topics and themes of domestic abuse, and domestic violence. So if that is not something that you are in the headspace to hear about, please feel free to listen to a more lighthearted episode instead. So spoiler alert, content warning, you have been warned. So A Spell of Good Things was the book that I read to fulfill the Nigeria prompt and as I had hoped this book was indeed set in modern day Nigeria. It centers around two primary protagonists 16-year-old Eniola whose family is financially struggling after his father has been fired from his position as a history teacher at a public school. And our other protagonist is Wu Raola. She is a doctor and her father has retired from his teaching position. So, her family is quite well off. Oh, at this point, I also need to apologize if I'm messing up any pronunciations. I noticed in reading this book that there were quite a few diacritical marks, so I'm assuming that the pronunciations are also quite complicated, and I <laughs> I, I do apologize about my lack of knowledge in this field. Okay. Moving forward, A Spell of Good Things is primarily about politics, the corruption and violence and unfairness that the author sees in modern day Nigeria's political system. The chaos and often brutality of the political system are what drive the plot forward, the forces that shape these two families' very different destinies. I mentioned that Eniola's father was fired from his teaching position, but what I didn't mention is that that happened because he was teaching at a public school, and essentially the government fired a whole bunch of humanities teachers. Math and science are practical. History is not. The father having provided the family's sole income, this creates a really difficult situation for the family as the months pass and the father is unable to find a new job. He's always suffered from depression and eventually he's unable to keep looking for a new job. He's unable to do anything except lie in bed and suffer. And there's this passage about Eniola's father that I found to be really poignant. Oh, Busola, by the way, is Eniola's younger sister, and we will get to her in a moment. Baba Eniola gave the sheep back to Busola. He was grateful to her for this. She still made demands of him. She assumed he was capable of more than the reveries he often sank into able to do more than putter around the house all day. Now and then, her faith was enough to push the darkness away. But unlike Busola, Eniola has very much given up on his father. He's furious with his father's inability to just get up and do something. Furious that the family is eventually reduced to begging in the streets so that they can keep food on the table. But what's really the last straw for him is when his mother puts him in a public school while keeping his sister Busola, who does better academically, in the private school. While this isn't an easy situation for any of the family, in many ways, Eniola does end up bearing the brunt of the suffering. And so he befriends some boys at school who take him to the governor's house for free food. But of course, this free food comes with strings attached. Eniola is conscripted into serving as one of the governor's bully boys, for which he's paid, but which requires him to do some pretty unconscionable things. But in many ways, Eniola doesn't really feel like he has a choice. Meanwhile, on the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, Wu Raola is busy with her medical residency, but she's also trying to juggle a difficult relationship with her boyfriend Kunle. Kunle has become both physically and emotionally abusive, but she doesn't feel like she can end the relationship. Not only does she feel like she might be overreacting to the abuse, not only is she not sure that she wants to recognize this as abuse, but her family and Kunle's family are close friends, part of the reason that she chose him to be her boyfriend in the first place. And when Kunle's father, Professor Coker, decides to run for governor, Wu Raola's father, Otumba, decides to financially back his election attempt, linking the families even closer together and making Wu Raola's situation feel even more impossible. But, of course, Otumba's decision comes with a price. The sitting governor, who does not want to lose the election, sends his bully boys, including Eniola, to kidnap Otumba. But the thing is, Eniola's family used to be friends with Wuraola's family, and so he knows Otumba. Eniola does help to kidnap Otumba, but once they actually load him onto the van, Eniola decides that he can't do this. He knows that this isn't going to end well and he can't continue to participate so he jumps out of the van and runs home which leads the bully boys to show up at his family's house and kidnap busola so that the family won't tell anyone what's happened eventually otumba and busola's bodies are found they were both murdered But in one last stroke of socioeconomic commentary, Otumba's body is identified, giving Wuraola's family a chance at closure. But Busola's body is not, leaving her family to continue searching for her in vain. And so, almost purely because of Nigeria's political situation, these two families' lives implode leaving the characters forever changed. And the most heartbreaking part of this book, really, is that you can see how much the mothers in both of these families were determined to protect their children. Both mothers work so hard to make sure that their children have a brighter future than they did. And the fact that only one mother succeeds isn't a reflection of how hard they work towards this goal. It's only a reflection of which family got lucky and which family did not. But while the plot is, of course, both interesting and deeply saddening to read about, what really caught my attention is, of course, the characters themselves. You know me and my thing about characters. We have been over this before. I have been interested personally in literary explorations of domestic abuse and domestic violence for a long time and I've also written about it myself with varying levels of success. So, of course, I was really interested in how this author was going to explore Wuraola and Kunle's relationship once it became clear that this was a toxic relationship. And this exploration actually ended up being, at least for me, one of the most interesting and impressive parts of the book. The abuse isn't sudden. It's a slow escalation throughout the book that's happening almost in the background as their lives and their families become ever more entangled. Wuraola's family publicly, publicly, publicly backs Kunle's father as a political candidate. Wuraola and Kunle get engaged. Wuraola's family celebrates her impending marriage as the biggest accomplishment of her life, even bigger than her academic and professional success. Even when Wuraola's younger sister, Motara, sees Kunle hit her, Wuraola tells Motara that she's imagining things. It's not abuse. It's not that bad. Everything is fine. Motara is just a kid who doesn't understand. And the core of Wura Ola's rationalization that keeps her trapped in this relationship is distilled around three quarters of the way through the book when she comes up with five reasons or really five excuses for why she stays in what might pretty objectively seem to be a terrible relationship. So, here are her five reasons. Wuraola channeled her thoughts to the reasons she might give to her friends. She did it to steel herself in preparation for some future in which they knew the truth, to stave off the worries her sister's questions had stirred, her latent fear that she might be making the worst mistake of her life. One, she loved him, not in the way she had once loved so with an aching tenderness she did not understand until he could no longer be hers. The depth of her affection for Kunle was clear to her once they became lovers. Wuraola loved him utterly and possessively. She wanted to marry him because then, He would belong to her. She was claiming what she wanted. That smile. That body. That charm. All hers. Two, Kunle loved her. He did. She had never doubted his affection. Except when, but even those moments. What if they were a manifestation of his intense feelings? Of how his affection tethered on the edge of obsession? Auntie Biola had once told Wuraola that it was better to marry someone who loved you more than you loved them. Now, how to determine the quotient of love? If verbal or physical expressions were a unit of measurement, Kunle loved her with his whole being then? Even the parts he tried so hard to suppress. The mark was fading. In a week or two, it would blend into her skin. But under all this light, it was visible to someone who was not even looking for it. Kunle checked her body for discoloration now. He pretended he was just caressing her. But she knew he was studying her skin, hoping her bruises had faded. When he found any, he pressed his face into her flesh right there. Sometimes, that was the beginning of their most tender lovemaking. His fingers dancing across her skin. Father Light. As though she was made of porcelain and he did not want to break her and that was reason number three the sex was not simply good it was polyvalent constantly changing in register always pulsing with the possibility of surprise reason number four they fit seamlessly into each other's families she understood his family it was like hers only smaller Her father smiled at her, and that was reason number five. He was smiling the way he had during her matriculation into the university and at her induction into the medical profession. Those iterations of his smile were predated by an earlier one she only remembered from a photo that was taken on her first birthday. In it, she is walking away from the cake table towards her father he is at the edge of the frame and her back is to the camera her face is not visible but his smile is this proud smile how could she call off the introduction now and ruin that and there it was five reasons for all the women she was disappointing by putting on her new dress slipping her feet into the shoes Ye -ye had bought for her turning her head this way and that as praise Tied her gay going ahead as planned. Heedlessly? No, only regardless. This was her decision, and she'd identified five things that mattered to her. That was enough. It had to be, for now. What I think is so brilliant about these five reasons is how these five reasons managed to break down her thought process into an argument that makes complete sense to her, but which, from the outside, is so fundamentally flawed. Because you can't argue your way out of violence, but if you're convinced that your family's happiness hinges on this relationship, if you're convinced that you do truly love this person and this person does actually love you, then you're certainly going to try to make that argument. It's not that he wants to hurt me. It's just that he can't help being his entire self with me. It's not that I'm just doing this for my family. I'm also doing it for myself. I love him. I want him. I can't live without him. The abuse is only a part of our relationship. An unfortunate part, yes, but in reality, it's so much more. But of course, ultimately, you can't compartmentalize or rationalize away abuse. Ultimately, it's not something that you can just ignore, which of course is the realization that Rura does have to reach. And she reaches it in a scene that's difficult to read, but which does show us what is generally the inevitable end result of abuse. And in that scene, here's what Ruraola realizes. He relaxed his hold. She looked at him pleading with her eyes. She realized that he was not as angry as he had sounded. This terrified her. He wasn't merely losing his temper. What was happening in that moment was not accidental, and whatever was to follow was premeditated. He had thought about this all day and had decided that he would punish her. So it's not about Kunle loving her too much. It's not about Kunle being unable to control himself. It's about Kunle deliberately consciously, intentionally deciding to punish her when what she does doesn't conform to what he wants to see from her. It's about control and the problem with this need for control is that ultimately the abuser is going to decide that whether or not you get to live is also within their control. So, I really liked how this author handled her depictions of abuse and complicated, toxic relationships. What I also liked about A Spell of Good Things is something that is common to a lot of my favorite books, which is that this book goes inside the head of pretty much every major character. Every character has their own perspective, their own point of view their own reasons for why they act the way they act. One of the most interesting side characters to me was Rura Ola's mother, Yeye. She seems to be an encapsulation, a representation of the way that older generations in Nigeria act. And she's also this very pragmatic, sensible forward-focused woman who has very little time for affection or sentimentality. Here's a passage that illustrates how Ye feels about her husband, and which also illustrates who she is and how she approaches life, and in particular, domestic life. Oh, and he, in this case, is her husband. His need for reassurance often made her irritable. So what if she chose him because of his name and his wealth and his family in which no one was wretched? How could she not care about him when she was so grateful for him? When she always supervised his meal and served him herself, slipped into his room once a week so they could make love and never turned him away if he came into hers and tugged the drawstring on her nightgown during the night. But he had always wanted more from her, Dismissing the things she enumerated as her duty. As if duty could not be some form of devotion, of love. She did not sulk for days, hoping he would prove that he cared. After over three decades of marriage, why would she need that? He let her lean into him when they danced, so her knees would not suffer. That was enough proof for her. Gosh, I love that line so much. As if duty could not be some form of devotion, of love. And honestly, I can't disagree with Ye -ye here. The vilification of gold diggers has honestly always bothered me because especially in times and places where women could only advance their socioeconomic status through marriage then of course they were going to choose men for their circumstances, and not necessarily for how they felt about them. Not to mention that marrying for love at all is a relatively new phenomenon. But what's more interesting to me than Ye's relationship with her husband is her relationship with her children. And in particular, the dichotomy that exists between how she raised her two older children and how she is now raising her youngest child. Yeye no longer justified the way she was raising Motara. She had tried to do this for a few years, but her older children only interpreted anything she said as confirmation of their suspicion. That she had become a mother who chatted into the early hours of the morning with her teenager instead of making sure she was studying, because she finally had a child she liked. What was it La Yi had said the last time they discussed the so-called dreams he was chasing instead of putting his certificate to good use? I know you love me, but I don't think you've ever liked me. This was the charge he brought. That Motara, who overslept and lied and hardly helped around the house, who had average grades because she could not be bothered to study, was the only child Ye -ye liked. Where had La Yi learned to make such distinctions? If he were busy completing a residency training, he would not have time to come up with theories about who liked him and who did not smile widely enough when he showed up unannounced. Of course she liked him. The truth had always been simpler than La Yi thought it was. Motara was the only child who had not become a sullen and silent version of herself when she hit puberty. Motara was not unknowable. She usually said whatever was on her mind. Maybe too much of what was on her mind, but most times Ye Ye liked this about her. Take this lie about the crackling gaylay. In a week or two, while they were talking about something else, Motara might confess that she had been lying and shrug it off. If she was in a good mood, they might even laugh about it. It was not favoritism. No, she just knew her last child better than she knew the others when they were this age. When I read this part of the book, something clicked in my brain This passage made me really sit down and rethink how I view parent-child relationships. How I think about that cliche about the youngest child being the favorite. How sometimes it's not that your parent doesn't love you or doesn't like you, it's that They don't think of love and affection in the same way that you do. And sometimes nobody is really in the right or the wrong, but you can end up hurting each other anyway. And that is why I love reading, why I love stories about families and dysfunctional families, and why I love this book, A Spell of Good Things, so much. It's heartbreaking and it's real and it speaks to me on such a deep level in the way that my favorite books always do. And of course, as you may have noticed already, A Spell of Good Things has one other thing in common with books that I really, really like, which is that it's well written. There's small moments like this one on the center table, a candle flickered, pooling even more wax onto a wax-encrusted milk tin. Shadows slid across the room as its flame wavered. Unable to dispel the darkness, the candle had settled for rearranging it. Or there's this moment. Ia alakara's home had been burnt to ashes when there was a power surge some years ago, while the house their father had built lost its roof to a storm of a few months after their mother's death. Now the walls had caved in, and grass grew tall and lush in the corridors of their childhood. It's always the small moments for me, the small phrases, and for some reason, that last part really tickles my brain in just the right way. Grass grew tall and lush in the corridors of their childhood. I love the cadence of the writing, the music and the words. It's so enjoyable to read and that also extends to something that is often found in literary fiction which is an opening and a closing which mirror each other. Literary fiction loves endings that embody both what stayed the same and what has changed. Here is the closing paragraph of the prologue. And the point of view character here is Carol. Carol is Eniola's aunt who runs a dressmaking shop, and Eniola is her apprentice. Elections were coming up in a year or so. In the next few months, campaign posters would begin to appear, littering every fence would begin to appear, littering every fence and wall in sight with the faces of men whose smiles already showed they should not be trusted. Last time, her wall had been covered from top to bottom with some senator's campaign posters because her front yard faced the street. She must remember to ask someone to paint, post no bills, on the wall soon. She'd ask one of her apprentices, probably an Eola. This opening centers politics, which will be the main driving force behind the narrative, and it foreshadows Eniola's later development with the political forces, which even now affect his family and will do so much more fatally in the future. And then, here is the closing paragraph of the, ep- of the epilogue. And again, the point of view character is Caro. Caro. She had to wait until Aniola was calm. It was the first time she was seeing him like this. She wiped his damp face with her sleeve. He'd been a muted version of himself over the past year, but not once had he broken down while he was in her shop. Aniola paused to draw breath, and Caro heard rain hammering down on roofs in the distance. Elsewhere, a storm had been unleashed, and its clouds were already darkening her front yard. Soon enough, it would be here. She might have to wait until later in the day to see Ye A lot has changed between the prologue and the epilogue, but a lot has also stayed the same. Eniola is still Caro's apprentice, but he's been emotionally shattered by the loss of his sister. Caro still runs her shop, but a storm is approaching just as she's thinking about Yeye, whose husband's death and however unwillingly, was involved in. A lot has happened over the course of the book, but in many ways, the long-term fallout is only just beginning. But because this is a book, we have to turn the page, close the story, and forever wonder what exactly that fallout will look like. And that's often both the beauty and, honestly, the annoyance of literary fiction, that it denies you true closure. Alright, so those are all of my thoughts on A Spell of Good Things by Ayobami Adebayo, which I really enjoyed, and if you haven't read it yet, but you've listened to all the spoilers already, I still encourage you to experience it for yourself. And... That wraps up our Reading Around the World mini-series. I hope you enjoyed this mini-series, and I hope I've inspired you to add some international books to your TBR. That is going to be everything for this episode. Make sure to check out the FOMO Book Club episode also releasing this week, and I will be back next week at 2 a.m. with a State of the Pod episode. Until then... Have a great week and happy book travels.